Welcome to the Talented Learning Show podcast series, episode 20 with independent learning tech analyst John Lay. Today I interviewed Donald H. Taylor, chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute, about L&D trends in 2019. Find more of our content at talentedlearning.com. Hello, listeners. We have another great show for you today with yet another phenomenal guest. On this show, I'm fortunate to interview the world's leading experts in learning technology from the vendor, practitioner, consultant, and analyst perspectives. Today, our guest has deep, deep expertise from all four perspectives and has been a thought leader in the learning technology space for almost 30 years. Don Taylor has hero-like status with the talented learning analyst team because he has his finger on the pulse of the global L&D market like no other. Just about everyone in the global L&D market knows Don from his many long-lasting concurrent roles, including chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute for 13 years, chairman of the Learning and Skills Group for 18 years, chairman of the Learning Technologies Conference and editor of the Learning Technologies Magazine for 19 years and countless years as a frontline learning and technology consultant working with the world's best organizations. Welcome to the Talented Learning Show, Don. It's great to have you here. I'm great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. All right. We're going to talk to Don about a lot of stuff today uh, from his view on learning technology all the way down uh, to the latest uh, L&D Global Sediment Survey that many of you probably uh, participated in from a uh, filling it out standpoint. Uh, so we're, we're thrilled to, to dig down and, and get Don's perspective because you're one of the best known voices in the learning industry and particularly uh, in the United Kingdom. And like me, I think you're fascinated by the, the evolving role of technology in supporting organizational learning strategies. And before we dig into the survey, I was wondering, what are the most pressing issues and opportunities you see on the horizon for learning systems and related technologies? Start big for me, John, it, for me, John, it comes back to the people involved. We can do extraordinary things with technology now, and we can do marvelous things, particularly with the data that comes out of that. But what troubles me is whether the learning and development profession really has the skills to be able to make the most of it. And I'm not sure we do. So we can talk about that in more detail if you like. Hmm. Great. Well, we'll come back to that on, on the skills part here because that's mm. think how, how we'll wrap uh, uh, the, the day up. Uh, although you're based in uh, the United Kingdom, uh, you probably more than anybody I, I know has an extremely global perspective on corporate learning and development. You really have followers and activities around the world and Curious, uh, what are the key similarities and differences that you see when comparing or contrasting organizational learning in Europe and the U.S. Uh, with the rest of the world? Uh, any common trends or uh, is it all the same everywhere? What are, what are your thoughts on that? I know that's a broad question, but interested to hear. It's certainly not the same everywhere, but the differences are not necessarily predictable. Usually, in many things, including learning technologies, but it extends to finance and other things, the phrase is, if the USA sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. The idea being that something happens uh, over your side of the Atlantic and then there's a ripple effect and bang, it hits the rest of the world. And sometimes we can see that happening. Micro learning is a great example. There was a huge surge of interest in that. 2015 in the US, 2016, that came 2017, 2018 over to the rest of the world. That's predictable. But it's not always like that. And there are other times when things get really interesting elsewhere in the world. The US picks up on it. And there are, of course, isolated things that are different everywhere in the world. For some reason, the US is particularly interested in personalization. In India, for example, that's much lower down on their set of interests, whereas learning analytics, far higher there. And of course, there are different 
ways in which people approach learning, which I think are affected and learning technologies, which I think is affected by just the environment they're in. And I was talking about this with a New Zealander recently. I said, what's the, what makes New Zealand L&D different from the rest of the world? And she came straight back and said, well, we do things with number eight wire. I said, what? So number eight wire and number eight wire is a particular gauge of wire that if you're a farmer in New Zealand, you use to fix everything around the farm. And it's a bit like WD-40 or tape. It's one of those things that you fix everything with. And what she was saying was in New Zealand, because you've got a lot of it's a fairly sparsely populated country. A lot of people in onesies and twosies in their departments, they do everything themselves and they fix it. They do it themselves. And I think that's different to other multinational organizations you will have in UK, Europe, US, where you have vast departments and you've got much more specialism. So there are lots of variations across the world. Gosh, we could spend another an entire podcast talking about that. But let's let's be one. Let's be clear. The world is not homogenous. It's not all the same everywhere. And we should celebrate that fact. There's difference everywhere. Excellent. Excellent. Great answer. How interesting. How interesting. I do most of my work in the U.S. and in the U.K., but uh, not as much uh, around in other parts of the world. So I, I get to see it a whole lot less than you. So it's, it's really interesting to hear how that is different. Um, but let's drill down uh, specifically uh, in your global L&D uh, sediment survey, uh, your annual one question poll that reveals so much <laughs> about the expectations of learning professionals around the world. You just published your 2019 uh, reports. So I'd like to talk to you about that. But first, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the survey, could you briefly explain the concept for us? The idea, John, is to check the pulse of the community. Just get a very quick view at the end of the year. Hey, next year, what's on your mind? Give them 16 options and they can choose one, two or three of those and they just click it and that's it. They're done. So they, they let us know very quickly, very quickly. We're looking just for a gut reaction. What's on your mind for next year? One of those options is other, so they can write something in if they want to. Actually, fewer and fewer people are doing that each year. <laughs> so generally, I've got the list about right, and what we do is we get, a, we get a quick reaction from people. It's not what they're planning. It's not uh, what they've allocated budget to. But you know what's interesting? Because we hit people up via social media and via email, we find that we get people who are right at the beginning of the adoption curve doing this, and that what's high on the sentiment survey one year, two, three, four years down the line becomes business as usual for L&D. So it's a good leading indicator of where we're going. Wow, cool, cool. And when and why did you uh, decide to invest your time uh, in, in this analysis of the data and its its implication? And and how, is, how has the report been received by the learning community? Do they what do they think about it? <laughs> well, it, it, different people jump on different things. As always, if you publish something that confirms somebody's suspicions or prejudices or ideas, then immediately they leap on it and they, <laughs> they say, hey, look, I, I, it's proved I'm right. Uh, but other people are looking at other parts of the survey and, and really drilling down and looking at regional differences. Other people are because, you know, we've got 2000 people now responding to the survey worldwide. So we, it's fair to, to look at differences between different regions. Uh, and other people are looking at it and, and looking at some of the things I've revealed this year about the fact that there are clearly two different types of people responding to the survey, some of whom, if you like, are the the people who intellectualize and talk about it and the other people probably more on the practitioner side. And there's a very strong difference between the two groups and what they find 
important or hot. So it's been well received and different people are grabbing different parts of it. The reason why I do it is that it wasn't out there. I chair the Learning Technologies Conference in London, but I'm also involved with programming for the other seven events in the Learning Technologies field. And I need, in Learning Technologies family, I need professionally to have a handle on this and just know what people are talking about. Plus, I just love it. I love playing with Excel in the evening and really getting down into the data and trying to figure out what's really going on. You know, one person says, yeah, I think these three people are hot next. These three things will be hot next year. Great. Okay, that's one person's opinion. 2,000 people say it over six years. You start to get some trends. and It's really fascinating to dig into it and understand it. <laughs> and so you added that trend over uh, year over year trend analysis uh, to the to the report here a, a few years ago. Is that when uh, this survey really took over in life? Is that is that what makes it all come together <laughs> is to look at the difference between the, the year to year versus just any given static year? I think I think as soon as you add longitudinal data and people start looking at where we're going and it becomes much more interesting. Absolutely. You're right. Yeah. So people people really thought, hey, gosh, I, I can see that. For example, mobile delivery is dropping down the table. What does that mean? Well, it actually doesn't mean that mobile delivery is less important. What it does mean is that people think it's less hot. And that just means it's moving from being something that was exciting to something that's business as usual. So you have to add that bit of thinking around the numbers to understand them. But yeah, you only get that, as you say, when you do year on year analysis. And yeah, building up the that body of data over time is what really has given it its value. Mm-hmm. So moving down the list is uh, the equivalent of, of using your number eight wire. Well, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> you know, I, I think every year I do this, I get a more sophisticated view of what's going on. And sometimes going down the list simply means, yeah, it's become business as usual. But sometimes moving down the list means people just don't get it. Uh, at MOOCs, for example, went down the list pretty quickly. Huh. And that's not because we know it's not because people are using loads of MOOCs. It's because people couldn't really get a handle on it and they moved on to something else. So wow. there are different reasons why things move up and down the list. Wow. Another example while we're here, other than MOOCs, that have moved down the list in the same way? Well, uh, I, I hate to say it, but gamification. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm a big fan of gamification in many ways because I've seen it work. But I think as a concept, people have grabbed hold of it but it hasn't translated from the concept to the reality. People have found it difficult to grab that and really put it to work. And as a result of which, it's it's become something people talk about but don't do. And it's not as exciting as some other things on the list. Hmm, interesting. And how about uh, when you talk about clearly the two types of of respondents to the survey, the intellectual hmm. and, and the practical side, what would be a, a key difference, uh, you know, in in terms of how they responded to the survey between those two groups? Well, that's a great question. So the, the, the two groups, first, it became apparent to the two groups because I I had a, a stop point halfway through where I stopped focusing on social media and started focusing on um, email as a way of getting hold of people. The people who were connected, highly connected on social media were very different to the people who were highly connected uh, on, on email or who were connected with on email. Uh, and so the result is that the people who are sharing stuff a lot on social media, they're the, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to use phrases and words that aren't too, that don't have too much extra extra meaning around them. So I'm going to call the social media group the near group. They're very near to each other, at least online. Uh, the other group are the wide group. They're more spread out. 
and they're connected to each other probably by email. The near group are near also to the latest things. They talk about it a lot. The wide group are probably more, as I say, practical and, and pragmatic and doing things. So the the there's a very clear difference that the near group voted up one group of seven options and the wide group voted up a completely different set of seven options. The near group like innovation, they like methodology, and they love being connected on social media. The wide group prefer familiar stuff and they prefer technology. So for example, personalization was number three on the list at day 33, but once the wide group came in, that got pushed up to number one because it was a familiar thing to the people answering. Learning analytics, however, was number one for the near group by a large margin on day 33. But then once we opened it up and my partner started sending out big email shots, that dropped down to number three because it was less familiar to that wider group. So that's one, one good example of it. But all the technologies, all the technologies, uh, VR, mobile, video, they all had an uptick from the practical group and they were less interesting for the near group, just people who are connected on social media. Wow, that is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, yeah, and I think if you're listening to this podcast and you are uh, in the business of either trying to sell a bit of technology around learning or you're trying to persuade people in your organization to use a particular learning technology, bear in mind that that group is all that difference is almost certainly represented in your population. Some people will be keen enthusiasts, others will be pragmatists, and you will need to work out how to alter your messaging for those two different groups to have maximum effect. Wow, wow, yeah, I find uh, I, I certainly err on the pragmatist side of the. Of the, <laughs> of the I can see you. I can see you with your your sleeves rolled up out, out doing things in the yard. Absolutely. No doubt. No doubt. Well, one of the most uh, interesting outcomes, in my view, of, of the survey and the results is is that you know, even considering the two groups, but blending them together, uh, yeah. at least for for, the, for this question, all top three responses center on a single theme: uh, the the smart use of data. You know, yeah. Specifically, uh, number one was personalization, which relies heavily on AI. Number two is AI itself, and number three is learning analytics, also with a strong AI. Uh, uh, artificial intelligence uh, component. What do you make of that? It's incredible, John, because it's the first time we've ever had three options at the top of the table so closely unified with a common theme underneath them. And I think it shows that learning and development understands what's happening in the world. We come across personalization, the use of artificial intelligence, all the time, in our daily lives as consumers. You're on Netflix, you're on Amazon, uh, you're putting a search term into Google. Personalization, the AI is there behind it, tweaking second by second as you're doing something. We're used to that and we understand that's something which needs to be done or that we can benefit from uh, in learning and development, absolutely. The learning analytics one is also driven by data. It's slightly different in that I think we come across the use of analytics less commonly in our lives as consumers, but I think people do understand because of the way that we bump up against what other disciplines are doing, that using data to help you make decisions, learning analytics, not data, perhaps more information to help you make decisions is incredibly powerful. Um, and we can do that 
I think, in learning and development for two reasons. One is to help, yeah, prove a case. Hey, look, these things over here happened. We did this activity and look at this result. Fine. But I think more importantly, with learning analytics, as well as proving ourselves, it's improving ourselves. So we can use it to say, hey, we can look at the flows of people through this, the activity people are doing, the impact they're having. And these numbers and this activity show that if we tweak this and that, we can have an even better impact. And then you tweak it. And that's what happens. Now, I think it was Wanamaker, the American retail guy who said, uh, I waste half of my money uh, on advertising. I just don't know which half it is that I'm wasting. <laughs> now, you could say that in marketing until about 10 years ago, but you can't say it anymore. Now in marketing, it's all driven by numbers and analytics. And the, the marketers are pouring over their screens, trying to check out what happened with their latest click rates, the people coming through and so on. Now, that's starting to become, I think, how learning and development is looking at its own activity. And by the way, I'm not beating up uh, L&D here when I say this. It's much more difficult to persuade people to learn something and change their behavior over a period of time, which is what we do, than it is to persuade people to buy a different brand of washing powder, which is what the marketeers are doing. So let's not beat ourselves up. But yeah, I think this top three, all having this common theme, is something that has really resonated with me and lots of other people this year. Absolutely, John. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm lockstep with that. Uh, from the, the analytics standpoint, uh, both disproving and, and proving, uh, as mm -hmm. you said, are, are, are great uses of it. But, you know, as you know, at Talented Learning, we really focus on the extended enterprise yeah. uh, end of the equation, which means that that's the learning mm -hmm. that's faced not necessarily at your employees or not at your employees, but at your customers or your channel partners. And in this group, analytics has been in the forefront of our minds for, for years because we're not just measuring, and they're not just measuring, the practitioners and the, the vendors that support the space uh, aren't just measuring the learning efficacy uh, or the survey results, but they're combining that data with Google Analytics data, where yeah, the users totally. are coming from, where they're dropping off, how long they're they're being in a session, uh, what are how are they responding to marketing automation? Are they clicking on emails? What are other things that they're doing uh, in relation to your company? All of that uh, being factored together in those numbers crunches to reveal trends and and views, uh, both proving and improving, as you say, but on a on a much bigger. Uh, basis. Well, that's every day. That's really exciting stuff that we see. And and uh, now we, we're, we're seeing that that same mentality, at least in the U.S. here, start to pull into uh, the internal L&D uh, mm. uh, internal L&D folks, because now the capabilities there with with the learning technology. Well, John, you've written about this and it's really fascinating getting that hang, handle. And, you know, as I was looking at learning analytics on this, list, I was thinking about you and thinking about the whole extended enterprise piece, because that's really where the skill set of the ability to collect the data mm -hmm. and the ability to understand it comes together and we, we get very close to the marketing point, the, certainly the consumer marketing point. But do you think that L&D, from what you're seeing, has the skills and the ability to gather the data in and to interpret it correctly? They don't. Uh, they don't. And why would they? Uh, just not in the educational skill set uh, for, for any of us that were uh, trained as educators. So it always needs to be someone else. And this is where organizations struggle is 
who's that someone else? It's not enough for a full-time job, and it's pretty expensive to go and, and perhaps outsource another company to do it for you. And IT resources are typically booked inside an organization, so it's hard to get priority. So a lot of this data is there. They have Tableau. They have different data analytics tools to do this crunching. They just don't have the expertise. And so what we're seeing a trend now is that organizations are providing that as part of the data crunching tool or tool set is the expertise that goes along with it. And it's almost evolving as a, a new sector inside of learning technology of uh, these data analytic organizations, which could be anything from LRS companies to much broader than that, uh, that are providing the professional services and the tool to plug that particular gap. So they're providing both the software, uh, or if you like, the platform and the analytical capability on top of it as a service. Yes, exactly. And so now that's bridging the gap at, in an in a economically feasible and pragmatic uh, way. And why wouldn't you do that? You know, it's a bit like you 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 buy a car, you, you're expected to be able to drive the car because that's, that's life, that's how it works. But you buy yourself, uh, I don't know, um, a complicated piece of machinery like an electron microscope, unless you're a specialist, then you're going to have to get somebody else to help you drive that thing and get the pictures out. When you get the pictures out of the electron microscope, uh, you may also need some help interpreting them. To what extent, John, do you think people are going to pick up the skills of interpreting the data effectively so that the skills they have to buy in are not so much on the interpretation side, but more on the doing side, the, the practical bit will, will, will tie the data together and bring it through in a manageable way. But after that, we're going to expect you to actually be able to do the interpretation effectively. Yeah, as my dad said, everything is easy once you learn how. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think learning and development professionals, just by our nature, I, you know, are, are good at learning things. So, you know, we have to learn it to teach others. And so I think once the, the scales are removed from the eyes and they see the process and they see the benefit and how to, to do that, you'll, you'll start to see that skill set become more prevalent and then mm -hmm. sought after and, and then required. Uh, yep. you, know, you know, over time. Uh, and so in the extended enterprise, you know, we're not going out to uh, external folks very often. This skill set is being brought in house as, as well as the, the marketing mindset of, of the marketing professional joined with the, the instructional professional, which is needed in, in extended enterprise. We just see now that that skill set is just required. You, you just can't be a pure L&D uh, type skill set and run an effective extended enterprise. You, you need that other side. And, and it didn't used to be like that. It used to uh, go to other parts in the organization to, to support that, but not anymore. As you know, John, I chair an institute, um, the Learning and Performance Institute, and we're very big on trying to help people understand some of the skills that are coming up. But we also make the point of saying to people, that doesn't mean that everything else goes away. You still have to be able to create material. You still have to be able to deliver online or in the classroom. Oh, and by the way, marketing, project management, and this whole data stuff, you're going to need that too. Now, it doesn't mean that one person can do it. And I think this business of partnering with other people is really important. Partnering with vendors, partnering with people in your organization to do it, and where possible, developing the skills in-house. But probably being a T-shaped professional where you've got a thin layer of knowledge, you know something about everything, and you know a lot about something. I think that's the way of the profession in the future. And I think we're going to cease to be generalists who can do 
everything pretty well and increasingly be specialists in one area with a general understanding across the field. Last question, uh, Don. If you were offering advice to someone who's just starting out as a learning professional, we talked a, a lot about skills today and different skill sets. What would you say that they should do to succeed in this profession? And, and what does it take to future-proof a career in, in learning technology in, in the 21st century? That's a fantastic question. And the answer is your career is never future proof. And I know this talking to people uh, for two reasons. Firstly, um, the organizations that you rely on may not be here tomorrow. Secondly, the technology you rely on may not be here tomorrow. So do not hitch your wagon to any particular organization. I don't mean to be disloyal to it. I mean, be realistic and don't hitch your wagon to any one particular technology. But in order to stay abreast of things and keep up to date, Having a network is not a nice to have. It's absolutely crucial in terms of protecting your future development and your future career choices. You've got to know people. And I learn so much from my network and everybody I know that I speak to who is looking for jobs and who's successful doing it is doing it well because they've got a network to tap into. But the other thing the network enables you to do, especially via Twitter and LinkedIn, is to tap into some fantastic resources that bubble up and will challenge you and help you develop yourself. So my advice would be, if you want to stay ahead and you want to be the constantly curious, constantly developing professional that you need to be to be effective, get social and remind yourself every week to learn from other people and to give back to them and help them learn too. Well, there you have it. Sage advice from Donald H. Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> listen up, kids. Listen up. Excellent. Well, thanks for uh, joining our show today. How, where are, for the folks that are just going to be tuning in on the audio, uh, what's the easiest way to get to the, the survey results so they could read what we were talking about today? I'm sure you'll have the link all over your show notes, John, but it is donaldhtaylor.co.uk slash report. 19. That's one nine. Listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Talented Learning Show podcast series. You can find more of our resources at talentedlearning.com. Thank you.